all being here this morning. I hope that you will take your copy of God's Word and hope you'll turn with me to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Hopefully when you came in, you got one of these bulletins on the back of that. There'll be some notes that'll help us uh, work through this word together. This morning we have been walking through this uh, Old Testament letter, this Old Testament prophet of Malachi. And so uh, feel free to find your way there. It's the last book in the Old Testament. Um, It is the uh, first book before Matthew. And so feel free to use your table of contents. but, But find me there in Malachi chapter 2 as we've been working together through this um, during our time together on Sunday mornings. Uh, Last Sunday, if you were here, I had an image that Mark put up on the screen that uh, some of you took a little consternation with. Some of you saw it. Some of you didn't see it. He's going to put another image up on the screen. Now, I realize as soon as he does it, you're going to stop listening to me. So, um, just I know that this is going to go in one ear and out the other, but Mark's going to put that image on the screen, and this is just a puzzle or a quiz. No? Yes? Okay, so it's a, it's a puzzle quiz. It came out of Reader's Digest. This is not a new thing. Some of you have seen it before, but the question comes as you think about this puzzle is how many squares do you see? It's the question that is there. And so you'll look at this, and I know some of you, you're hearing me, but you're not listening to me because you're sitting there counting the squares, and you know that's a trick question. You know there's something afoot that I'm going to do, and you're thinking, I know that I count 20, but I'm sure there's got to be more than that. And so some of you are going back and forth, and some of your anxiety just flared up, and I'm sorry for that kind of. But, uh, but it's one of those things, you just ask the question of how many squares are on the screen in front of you. And so uh, I don't know how long to give you, but... How many would say there's 20 squares? 20 squares? How many of you would say there's five squares? Well, at least it's five squares. At least you can put your hand up for that. Okay, so uh, not going to participate this morning. Okay, so how many, how, how many think they see 30 squares? Just give me a face nod. Just give me a nod. Okay, so some of you think there's 30 squares. How many people see 40 squares? Does anybody see 40 squares? The very, the very smart, okay? The very, the very smart, okay? So if, according to the Reader's Digest, there are 40 squares up there in one form or fashion. And so some of you may look at that and say, I see it. Some of you may look at it and say, I don't see it. The point for me putting it up there is not to give us a, a, a brain question this morning, but to try to illustrate that oftentimes when it comes to our Christian life or it comes to our everyday life, there are things that we see And there's things that other people see, and there's also things that God sees. So as we've been going through this letter of Malachi, this prophecy of Malachi, Malachi is writing to a people, and he is not saying, well, this is what you think. He's not writing to say, this is what I think. He's writing to say, this is what God sees, and this is what God thinks. That's why I have entitled this whole series of Reflection, the idea that God is coming in through the pen of Malachi, and he's saying, I want you all to see what I see, and I want you to see what I see when it comes to your heart, when it comes to your behaviors, when it comes to your Christian lifestyle. So the the question is not, what do we think about ourselves? The question is not, what do other people think about ourselves? The question is, is what does God think about us? Sometimes it's important. Sometimes it's helpful for you and I to take stock. And it just come to the point in our lives and we say, God, what do you see? God, I, I see what the mirror says. I see what others say, but God, what do you see? So you look at an image like the squares a moment ago and you, some people see this and some people see this. The question is, what does God see? The question before us this morning is going to be a question of faith. 
In this passage, we're going to start in Malachi chapter 2, and we're going to start in verse 10, and we're going to read down through verse 16 together this morning, and you're going to see a common word being used over and over and over again. It's the matter of faith. The question that Malachi is bringing to the table, the, the accusation that God is bringing before the people, is that you have stepped away from the faith. You have lost the faith. You have moved away from what faith looks like in your life. So even before we get to Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10, I want to ask the question, well, what is faith? Well, if we are to think about how we are going to define what faith is, because if we're going to peer through these pages and he's going to talk about this lack of faith, it might be important for us to consider, have a starting place of what faith is. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says it like this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that when it comes to this idea of faith or trying to find a definition of faith, faith is hope. But not just that, he goes on in verse 6 of the same chapter, and he says, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and then he rewards those who seek him. So not only is faith hope, but faith also gives us direction in how it is that we live our daily lives. Take it another step forward and you go to 2 Corinthians in chapter 5 and verse 7. And the writer there is Paul and he is writing to that church and he is giving them instructions and he's reminding them of how it is that he lives his life and he makes this statement. For we walk by faith, not by and then take another step all the way back to the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. When God comes in and tells Abram, this is what I want you to do, it says in the Bible there in that verse that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Some weeks ago, I was listening to Tony Evans, a pastor down in Texas, and he was preaching and teaching on faith, and he made a statement, and I wish I had the moment to be able to pause it or stop or to go back and to write it down, and so I'm just going to paraphrase what he said because I thought it was so good. Paraphrasing Tony Evans, he said that faith is believing something will be so, even when it isn't so, because God said so. Now, I, I know that's not an exact quote, so please don't think, well, that's not what he said. I'm paraphrasing, but it's the idea that when it comes to faith, faith is believing in God, period. And faith is acting upon that belief in God. Faith is coming to the point where you realize that you need a God and you're not it. And because we have a God, because we have a creator, that changes how we live, that changes what we do, that changes what we think behave, prioritize, support, say, everything. So here in this passage this morning, in Malachi chapter 2, God's going to come in, and through the mouth of Malachi, he is going to question their faith. He's going to put it in the negative, if you will. He's not going to say, he's not going to talk about faith in per se, he's going to talk about faithless, or we think about the state of being faithless as faithless. The idea that he is going to say that when it comes to your daily life, you have walked away, stepped away, you're not living in accordance with faith, and so therefore you have become faithless. So you look there in verse 10, and he starts there in verse 10, and you can follow along as I read. We're going to read this entire passage, and we're going to come back up, and we're going to look at these two indictments that God brings to the people. Verse 10, God says this, have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Then why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers. 
Judah has been faithless, and, uh, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off, cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping, with groaning, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regard, regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. I pray that God adds understanding and application to his word this morning. You may come to this passage depending on how your Bible is arranged might be arranged in two different paragraphs. So, so you might come to this passage this morning, you may say, well, okay, so we're just gonna look at paragraph one and then we're gonna look at paragraph two. Rather, what I wanna do this morning is, is I wanna to, want to invite you to just consider that there's two different scenes, if you will. There's two, there's two different areas that God is talking about having to deal with the faithlessness of the people of Israel. And the first one had to do with their walk. You can go ahead and see down in your notes, he's gonna talk about their walk and he's gonna talk about their worship. Now, how do we see the him bringing an indictment or bringing a question to regarding their walk? <clears throat> well, he tells you there in verse 12 that they have profaned the covenant. What was the covenant? Well, the covenant was God coming to Abram and to the descendants of Abram and saying, if you will be my people, I will be your God. And this covenant that I'm entering in with you means that because you're gonna follow after me, because you're gonna serve me, because you're gonna obey me, and because you're going to submit to me, therefore I will lead you, I will guide you, I will direct you. You. And so God had made this covenant to the people. The people had then made this covenant to God. And so what was then taking place was, is they were breaking the covenant. How were they breaking the covenant? They were breaking the covenant by disobeying God. And that is what Malachi is bringing up and bringing in to their attention. He is saying, for Judah, and I'm here in the middle part of verse 11, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. They were ignoring God's commands, and they were denying the faith by their walk. Now, Spence, what's the problem with getting married? The problem was that God has a purpose for marriage. God has a design for marriage. I realize that we're living in a day and age that there is all sorts of people in this world that think that they define what marriage is, that they define what it should be, they define what, can, what, what composes a marriage. But in Genesis chapter two, and verse 22 through 24, God is the one that creates marriage. God is the one that ordains marriage. God is the one that oversaw the first marriage, and God is the one that then and thus defines what marriage is. How does God define it? God defines it as the relationship between a man and a woman in covenant matrimony before God. So it's not just a man and a woman, it's a man and a woman before the eyes and under the guidance and the direction of God. And so there's this marriage that is taking place. Numbers chapter 25. 
There's a plague that is in place. And the plague that is going on is because the people, the Israelite people, were starting to intermarry. They were starting to go with the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Midianites and all of these other ites that God had said, stay away from. The problem was not race. You do not see God addressing race in the Bible. Rather, it is faith. The concern that God has was when you marry outside of the faith, you are inviting pagan and idolatry into your life. So the idea was God said, because you are my people and my chosen people, I want you to be set apart. And when you come to marry, I want you to marry people that fear and serve God. You may say, well, I don't like that kind of idea. Well, that's God's rules. Take it up with God. God has given us instruction and God has said, it's not about race, it's about faith. I want you to marry within your faith. So in Numbers chapter 25, the people are intermarrying, they're marrying the pagans, they're marrying the idolaters, they're marrying the people that God said not to marry. (coughs) Phineas sees a man coming back in with a Midianite woman, takes the spear, the plague is on because of their faithlessness before God. He comes and he spears them both and the plague is stopped. Or you think about Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 13, there's been all kinds of reforms to the life of Nehemiah. But then in verse 13 and down, or verse 23 of chapter 13, listen to what Nehemiah says. He says, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. He is saying that this thing of intermarriage, this thing of people marrying outside of the faith, foreign people, foreign pagans, is not approved and not accepted by God. Well, that is what is happening here in Malachi chapter two. It is the same downfall that Solomon, the wisest man that had ever, has ever, will ever lived. First Kings chapter 11 is said that he had taken so many foreign wives that they led his heart away from God. So this is on a new danger. This is a reoccurring danger. So the people here in Malachi chapter two, God comes in and says, you are ignoring God's commands. You are taking these women of a foreign God there in verse 11. And not just that, but they are also defining and redefining what it meant to be married. And so you get down in the latter part of verse 13 through verse 16, and another thing they were doing was, is they're getting married in their youth, but then as the days went on, they decided, well, she's not that great anymore, so I'm just going to divorce her and get somebody younger. I've heard one man one time say that he was going to trade his wife in for a newer model. Good luck with that. But it's this idea that they were going back and they were treating marriage flippantly. They thought that they could interchange. They thought they could come and go. They thought they could take it or leave it. They thought it was some kind of a civic contract instead of a spiritual covenant. And so by their walk and by their lifestyle, they were not only showing that marriage, they were not going to uphold the standard and the principle of marriage is given by God, but they were also going to live in such a way that they treated marriage as disposable. We could spend the rest of the day, if we wanted to, getting up on that subject of how this society and this culture and this day that we're living in, how they have marred and how they have compromised and how they have corrupted the definition and the sanctity 
of marriage. Marriage is not important because you think it's important. Marriage is not important because I think it's important. Marriage is important because God says it's important. And so the question, the problem before us is that not only were they ignoring God's commands, but they were not living for God's glory. It wasn't about being the idea of showing the glory of God. Ephesians chapter five reminds us that this marriage picture, this husband and the wife, they're supposed to represent a picture of Christ and the church. They are coming together and through your marriage, you are not only showing the grace of God, the mercy of God, the perseverance of God, but you're also showing the faithfulness of God. Some of you men have only been married this long because your wife is gracious and long-suffering. And some of it is an opportunity through your marriage to say it has not always been easy, it has not always been perfect, it has not always been what people expected or what I had hoped for, but because God is good and God is faithful, we have been good and we have been faithful and we have kept our commitment to God and to each other. And they're living for their glory in this passage instead of living for God's glory. Think back to the Westminster Catechism. What is the ultimate goal of man? The ultimate goal of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, the idea that sometimes we get this mixed up, we start to think that it's about my glory. It's about my pleasure. It's about my wants, about what matters to me. And so you get along in a marriage and you're like, I'm not happy anymore. I'm not in love anymore. You have no idea what love means. And they use this as something disposable. And so Malachi comes in here and he's gonna address it on two different levels. He, and it comes back to their walk. They were ignoring God's commands and they were not living for God's glory. So the result was idolatry. And idolatry was the result, not the cause. They were marrying pagans. They were abandoning the wives of their youth. They were practicing divorce. They were doing all these things that God had told them not to do. And they find themselves in a situation that they're not walking before God. They're not holding the faith that God had given them. They're not practicing the faith that God had called them to. They are living for the world. And the world calls that idolatry. But I put there in your notes that idolatry was the result and not the cause because so many times in the world we're living in, we think that it's a big jump and a leap from being in the faith to being out of the faith. But the reality is that usually it's an incremental small steps. We move and we move and we move and we move. I've spoken to husbands and wives. Their marriage is falling apart in shambles. And one of them will make this statement like, I don't know what happened. Yesterday was great, and today is just completely different. I know there's some times when that might be the case, but the reality is, is that most of the time in our sin and in our backsliddenness and in our move away from God, it's not that we took one giant step and we were in faith and we were in touch and we were living by the Spirit today and one giant step and we are apostate, we are out of the church, we are backslidden, our hearts are cold, we are indifferent to the things of God, we've become callous, our spirit is dry. It's usually not one giant step. It's because we took one little step to one little step and they call that the slippery slope. One little step, one little step, one little step. So God comes in here through the voice of Malachi, through the pen of Malachi, and he says, I want you to understand that this state of faithlessness or this attitude, this situation where you have become faithless, it's not because of the, the, the day has changed. It's not because the calendar has changed. It's because you have slowly moved away from me. So he talks about their walk. 
But the second one, as I already told you, it had to do with their worship. Not only had they become faithless in their walk before God and they had stopped living in accordance with practices, keeping in step with the word and the commands of God, but they had become corrupted in their worship. What do you mean, Spence, by they had become corrupted in their worship? Well, you look back up there in chapter 2 and verse 12, it's God speaking through Malachi, and he says, May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this. Does what? Who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. You would say, well, Spencer, you mean, you mean that God is saying, curse be the guy that brings an offering? No, it goes much more than that. It, the idea was that this person was bringing an offering with the wrong heart, with the wrong attitude. He was bringing the offering out of a spirit of disobedience. He wasn't coming, presenting himself to God. He was just going through the motions. In other words, I put it in your notes, it was works without worship. No, we like that. I don't know why well, I shouldn't say we. I, 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 I. I like that. I would love for it to be just a matter of boxes and check marks, and I can just go through there and say, all right, in order to be a good, faithful Christian, I got to do these five things today. And once I get done with these five things, then I'm good. I can do the rest of the day however I want to. But that's not what Christianity is like. That's not what it means to be faithful before God. It's the idea that I'm leaving, being led living for the Spirit every single day. And yet in our humanity, we sin to gravitate towards works. Well, I'll go to church, and that'll, that'll mean I'm being a good Christian. Well, I'll get up and I'll read my Bible. That'll mean I'm being a good, good Christian. You can go through all the works and not worship God. That's why you have these false religions out there that are booming and that are growing because people are gravitating towards this idea of what must I do to be good with Jesus? That's what the rich young ruler asked. That's what the people came up and asked Jesus during his testimony and during his ministry on this earth. And Jesus looked at him and he didn't say, it's a matter of your offering, a matter of your church attendance. It's not a matter of where your membership is at. It's not a matter of, do you own a Bible? Do you read a Bible? It's a matter of the condition of your heart. And so the people were coming there in verse 12 and they were bringing an offering of a possession, but they weren't bringing an offering of themselves. They were putting on a show without offering submission. So he says there in verse 13, the, the passage continues. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards, regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Malachi is drawing in on the heart of the problem. These people were coming and they were giving their offering. They were coming and saying, oh God, we need you. Oh God, please do something. Oh God, we are so desperate for your grace. Oh God, we're so desperate for your presence. Oh God, we need a stirring of you. And they were crying and they're going through all of these actions and they're going through all of this show. But they weren't submitted to God. It was fake. Fake, fake. Fake, fake. It's amazing how many people engage in fakeness on social media. You get on social media and everybody is doing great. Their lives are awesome. Everything is great, 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 great. And then some people get on and it's like, oh, poor pitiful me. Oh, I'm such a victim. Oh, everybody feels sorry for me. Oh. And very few people get on there and say, I have good days and bad days. I have ups and downs, but you know what? It's not about me, it's about him. And yet so many people get on there and it's all about putting on this show. I have to put on the best presentation of me. And then other people get on there and go, oh, look, that person's life is great. That person's life is great. That person's life is great. And then look around and go, my life isn't that great. Oh, poor pitiful me. And we get sucked into this cycle of comparing ourselves with what people show us of themselves. And it is a race to the bottom. 
Sometimes the same thing can come when it comes to church. Everybody shows up for church, and man, people have the show. People know when to stand up. They know when to sit down. Oh, people look so spiritual, and they look so rich. And then you come to church, and you're like, you know what? I feel dry. I feel distant. I'm just not feeling it. I just don't feel that connection. Preacher didn't speak to me this morning. I was kind of bored. My mind was elsewhere. And then you leave home feeling so guilty and so beat up because you feel like you're the only person that just showed up this morning. And you're not. problem that Malachi is telling them is that they were coming and they were doing these works without worship. They were putting on this show without submission. And the reason was is because there was unrepentant sin in their life. And because they were coming and they were thinking they were going to put on a production or a performance without having a heart of faith before God. So the writer here, Malachi, says, so you need to understand that your faithlessness, God sees it, not just in your walk, but in your worship. It wasn't a matter of saying what we think. It's a matter of what God thinks. That's why five times through this passage, he calls them faithless, faithless, faithless. It wasn't a matter of their emotions. It wasn't a matter of their ideas. It wasn't a matter of their beliefs. It wasn't a matter of what popular opinion was. It wasn't a matter of what the leading reasoning was. It doesn't matter what they thought was true. God was saying, this is what I see in you. I see you coming going through the performance, going through the show, going through all of the actions, but I don't see a heart that's worshiping me. So we look at that image with the squares and we see so many squares. Someone else looks at our lives and they see so many squares. It doesn't matter how many squares I see or you see. The question is, how many squares does God see? What does God see when it comes to the attitude of our hearts? What does God see when it comes to the position of our heart? What does God see when it comes to the posture of our heart? You know, so many times we make a big deal of church attendance, and that's great. We had a great crowd here last Sunday morning. So very blessed by the numbers of people that were coming and the, the opportunities of ministry right here in this community and overwhelmed, grateful and appreciative. But you know what? You can fill a room this size with the juggling act. We could bring in monster trucks right here on the stage and we could pack this place out. You could bring in some type of entertainment, some type of a concert and fill the place. The question and the goal is not how many numbers of people you have in a sanctuary. It's the condition of the heart of the people in the sanctuary. And my concern for us as a church and my concern for you as a person is not just the outward show, but what God sees in your heart. Are you living faithfully before That's the question. That's the ask. That's the coming in saying, are you being faithful in your walk and are you being faithful in your worship? So Malachi comes into this chapter. Malachi comes into this passage and he just makes it very clear. He comes in and says, this is not what you see. This is not what others see. This is what God sees. And what God sees is that you have some problems. You have some faithlessness going on in your lives. And he illustrates it through the marriages and through the ways they were profaning the covenant and the ways they were moving away from God. And he also talks about their worship before God. Now, what is worship? How do we define what worship is? Is worship raising your hands? Is worship music? Is worship singing out loud? Is worship a feeling? Is worship an atmosphere? 
Is worship a time on the schedule? What is worship? You know, we'll talk a lot about that. We're, we, we're just going to have a time of worship. We're going to have a time of this, and we're going to have a time of this. But, we, have, but we, we so often just skip right past what is worship. Others realize there's a lot of ways that we can define what worship is this morning, but I would just put before you maybe the idea that worship is what you do with your heart. So if you come in this morning and you have all kinds of little G-gods running around your life and you are filling your life with the idolatry of this world and the idolatry of the things around us, then you are not worshiping God, you're worshiping the things around you. That's why I put in your notes, when it comes to the worship, they were putting the secular before the spiritual. <clears throat> they were putting the secular before the spiritual. There were a lot of other things that were dictating their schedule, that were dictating their calendars, that were dictating their attitudes and their walk and their worship, and it wasn't the things of God. And it wasn't ultimately that God was saying, I want X amount of ounces of grain. I want X amount number of turtle doves. I want you to give a certain amount of money to the coffers of the, the, the temple. It wasn't that God was saying, I want to look at your boxes and I want to look at your checks more. It was a matter that God was coming in and saying, I want your What's your heart to worship me? Because when your heart worships me, then you will follow me with your lives. You will walk after me. So how are we living today? Micah come, or Malachi comes in, he gives this snapshot, he gives this reflection. God is looking at his people and saying, this is what I see, this is how you're living. I see your walk, I see your worship, but what about us? Just a couple of things, a few things that will be done this morning. The first question I want to put before you is, does faith control you or nag you? Does faith control you or nag you? You know what I mean by nagging. It's somebody that's always nee, 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 nee. I didn't see a church this morning. 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 Some of you have, some of you sometimes put me on mute. I already know what you do. I get it. I understand. <laughs> Text message. 12.45, missed you at church today. God, Lee won't leave me alone. And it's one of those things that sometimes you're like, nag, 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 nag. And husbands, if we were to be honest, we were to know that sometimes when she starts nagging, we just say, well, we're not gonna do it, period. She keeps on nagging, we just aren't gonna do it. And sometimes we resist. And sometimes we think, man, I get so tired of the constant, nah, 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 nah. Sometimes the question comes to our faith. Does our faith control us or does our faith nag us? How do I know the difference, Spence? When you wake up in the morning, What's your attitude? I gotta read my Bible. If I don't read my Bible, I feel guilty all day. So I'm gonna read my Bible. But you get up in the morning and say, there's a lot of people in this world that don't have a Bible. And there's a lot of people in this world that don't have the opportunity to sit down and read the Bible. And there's a lot of people in this world that don't have the freedom to get up and read their Bible. So this morning, I have the opportunity and I have the blessing of being able to read my Bible. The question is, is, does it control you in the way that it gives you guidance and direction in your life? Or does it nag you where you feel like you're always being drugged against your will? Sometimes you come to church, not because you want to, because you feel guilty if you don't. And I realize there's those times, those seasons of life, and all I can tell you is, is keep coming to church. Keep doing the things that God has called us to, and over time, he will knit our hearts the things of his. So does faith control you, or does it nag you? The second thing, God sees your actions, or God sees your attitudes, not just your actions. 
So you come to church and you just go through the motions. You just go through the show and you just stand up and you sit down and you're just marking off boxes. And you say, well, I came to church today. I did what I was supposed to do today. No, but God sees your attitude. And I realize that you may think this is absolutely impossible, but it is possible to come to church with a sour attitude. It is possible to sit through an entire church service with a crummy attitude. It is possible to come to church, put on the face, and have an attitude that is far away from the things of God. But God sees our attitude. God doesn't look at our actions. He looks at the condition of the heart. So you ask yourself the question, what is my attitude like before God? This last one I want to put before you because I think it's important to what Malachi is saying. Malachi is looking at a people and he is saying, you become faithless. And the problem is, the problem is on the stage is that whenever these people had become faithless before God, then that was leading a whole group of other people around them to question the authority of God. Let me put it a different way. God has saved you for a purpose. God has set you here in Wellston for a purpose. He has placed you here to be a light and to be a witness of who God is. But the problem is, is that if you step away from the faith and you start living a faithless life before God, then all the lost people in Wellston are going to look at you and say, well, if they're not going to follow God, then why do I got to follow God? And the question then is, why would these people turn to God if you're not turning to God? And the same problem was there in the Old Testament because God knew that the way that these people would know who God is was by God's people living like God was God. So their faithlessness was leading to a whole segment of people that were then having a wrong understanding, a wrong idea, and they were not coming to God. So that's why you see in the New Testament when Jesus looks at his church and says, you are to be the ones that are going to go tell people about me. You are going to be the people that are going to lead people to me. In other words, I put there, the last part of your notes is you are an influencer. All in social media right now, some of you older people may say, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. It's like a big thing right now. I want to be a social media influencer. You get on apps and there's people that are making a living off of showcasing. You used to have QVC, right? You used to have QVC. You could turn on the channel and somebody be hawking something or selling something. Well, now you have it on the apps. Now you can go on there and somebody is showcasing, showcasing certain items and they're trying to say, well, you buy this and you buy this. It's just a new version of QVC that they've remarketed. But there's these people that they're actually making money. They're actually making money by having a following, by having a certain amount of people that listen to them. They are being paid and they are being sponsored by being an influencer to get into people's ears and in their eyeballs and into their mind. And because of their influence, they are compensated by companies for the sake of their influence. And there are people that are even now, right now, some of you students in high school, you may be one or you may have someone else in high school that they say, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to be an influencer. I want to be a social media influencer. And that sounds so cool. That sounds so trendy. And that sounds so hip. And I would tell you right now, you do not have to wait till you become an adult to become an influencer. Because you can be an influencer right now for Jesus. And adults, we don't have to wait to bring someone to church so the preacher can beat them over the head. We don't have to wait until something different is our life. We can be an influencer pointing people to Jesus. Malachi comes in and he says, this is what God sees. God sees that not only are you living wrongly, but then you're walking wrongly. And what that is doing is that is giving a wrong representation, a wrong witness to the world around them. So then the question comes here to First Baptist Wellston. 
Does our walk lead other people's walks to Jesus? Does our worship lead other people to worship Jesus? Does our life reflect the life that God has called us to? You bow your heads with me.